All right, so let's talk. Let's talk about the, the same conversation we were just having. The sure. more details about the um, industrial market or warehouse market. Tell me w the keywords first, and then work backwards into the thesis behind it and like how you intend to ride that out. Sure, I guess the, you know the keywords you know really are kind of on-demand delivery, right? And that's in my mind the biggest driver of uh, where you know the need for additional warehouse space. I mean, e-commerce in general is is a, a very general general term, but then you get to on-demand de uh, mm -hmm. and you punch into your your uh, mobile phone that you want to have uh, I don't know the latest uh, iPhone delivered in the next hour, and you get a drone delivery that drops off a box at your at your front door, right? I mean that that in in thirty five minutes, whatever you know, just th that to me is kind of the future of the space. And if you are um, if if these companies are going to be able to execute on that strategy. Just imagine how close they have to be to high density of homes, right? You can't have a, a truck coming from a warehouse that's 40 miles away that then drops a box at a, at a, um, at a uh, delivery point and then a van goes and, and delivers it to your house. That's that's that will at some point become antiquated. And, and it's been, you know, it's been, uh, you know, the, the, the direction, the trajectory of that that piece of the industry is going in that direction. So I think there's um, a lot of the, going to be a lot of demand for kind of this smaller urban um, last mile delivery type of center, which is what we're currently building, uh, building, uh, permitting, and approving right now. Um, and it, you can really see it as you look at the recent uh, transactions, leases that have been executed by someone like Amazon uh, in the urban Boston area. I mean, there's been mm -hmm. uh, real uh, interesting transactions. The, 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 the rents are uh, much higher than are typically paid by industrial users, but it's because they need to be near their uh, customers. So, and that's happening in the country, so. What, um, so how big is the facility that you're building? It's a little under 100,000 square feet. Okay. And like, what is that? I'll give you the general information. It's on about five acres of land, mm -hmm. 100,000 square foot box with uh, some small amount of mezzanine space, maybe, you know, two to 3% of mezzanine space. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to have 20 plus uh, truck docks. Uh, and then we're going to have, you know, 100 plus parking spaces. Um, so, that's you know something we're you know really working through right now is kind of how do we how do we park this facility adequately um, and yeah so so we're working on the design and, and permitting and approvals today uh, with without a lease um, and mm -hmm. but we're looking to do a single tenant build to suit type of project so we're anticipating there's going to be some demand for the space in the next you know three or four months as we go through the process so. That's that's all for one tenant because I was going to ask: Is it was it is it multi-tenant or is it one single tenant that's leased that facility? The goal is for one large. I'm I'm surprised that yeah, the goal is for one large credit tenant. There's an opportunity for it to be multi-tenanted, but it's uh you know that that's uh and, and that could work out well as well economically. It's just uh you know our expectation is that a larger retailer like Home Depot, like Amazon, like Chewy. Uh, needs this type of space. They are in the market actively looking for this type of space from conversations with brokers. So that's uh, that. That's what our expectation is today, and and we're uh, working towards that. So.
Interesting. Um, and I was going to say, like, uh, is there an, uh, has there been an opportunity to do contract development in that space? Because instinctively for me, I'm largely unfamiliar with it. Um, what comes to mind is that those development deals are done in a build, operate, transfer type fashion where they contract a firm to go acquire a piece of land with certain criteria, acquisition criteria, mm-hmm. rather than free market development and resale. Sure. Um, is that the so, case? Or yeah, that's, there- that, that's a good example, uh, Anthony, for sure. I mean, there, there are preferred developers that have existing relationships with mm-hmm. Amazon, for example, and they're going to say, they're going to immediately know all their specs. They're going to know exactly you know, the locational requirements and things. So there are some preferred developers that work regularly with Amazon. Um, and we'd love to be one of those preferred developers. <laughs> so then because that's a way for me to, when I think of contract development, I put it in a separate bucket than market development, right? Sure. Uh, sure. One is speculative in nature, although not necessarily risky. Uh, and one is uh, effectively just a higher margin contract work. So mm-hmm. uh, reconciling that in this particular space, mm-hmm. would you say that the majority um, are have this development partnership arrangement and try to take risk off the table? Or is there a demand such that um, you produce the product, whatever relationship you may or may not have with the end buyer and just bring it to market? Because like self-storage, right? Yeah, you don't, yeah. you don't no, have to be bought yeah, out. Your, your, your latter example is the, is the correct one. That there, there's okay. so much demand today that that is happening, that people are building on okay. spec, knowing that some tenants are going to show up and take the space. Um, and so, you know, what I say, 50, maybe, you know, maybe it's 50, 50, I don't really know the stats exactly, but, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's, in, it's, it today is, you know, w- whenever you're developing anything, you want to take the risk off the table as soon as you can. And, and, th- and that really just comes down to, sure, if you're a preferred developer, that's one strategy, but, you know, we're, we are developers and entrepreneurs. And so we're finding uh, opportunities to build. You know, we, we, we were looking at this, this is an existing motel, right? And so a family owned this motel for many years, oh. operated it for 50 to 60 years. It uh, kind of slowly declined. They didn't uh, invest that much in kind of keeping it up and such. And so it's uh, the, the value of the cash flow has declined for them to the point where when COVID struck, you know, I think they really started thinking more seriously about selling it. Uh, so we con- contacted them originally because we were thinking, we were looking at a strategy of taking existing motels and hotels and turning them into um, apartments, multifamily apartments. Um, so we, we were looking at, you know, how can we reuse the bones for these different facilities? We contact them about this particular one, uh, quickly realized that, you know, that the numbers wouldn't work because they wanted too much for the prod property. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I gave a look to the zoning and we mm-hmm. determined that, Hey, this is as of right, uh, industrial use, distribution center use. Um, and it's located right on a major highway, uh, kind of along the corridor straight into Boston, Kennel Square, Cambridge. And, um, and it just came pretty quick, clear pretty quickly. It was the right thing to do. So that, that, that background, I, I like, it. I like having that because that, that gives me some context and how you got to the point of presenting the deal. Um, and yeah. oftentimes it comes from a strategy pivot or in your case, you're, you're effectively serving a client when you do that. Um, but for us, uh, in a more simple fashion, right, it's just 
it's just pivoting to where the opportunity might be. So it's cool that, I mean, that effectively was the highest value add of the history of the project. Yeah. Right. Now it just comes into say, okay, we want to meet a certain demand. I wonder then if, in your view, if you had the opportunity, if a, if a buyer showed up now and said, uh, you bring this to completion, we'll lock in a market price, um, what your position would be on that? If it was the right price, we'd be fine. We'd be fine with it. Absolutely. I mean, it's just a matter of... Given, given the risk at hand, I guess, right? Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, I think it's a good example of how we're flexible in terms of our thinking with, you know, managing and helping family offices find opportunities to invest in because you can't, you know, most, a lot, most developers you're going to talk to say, I do multifamily. Right. And so that's great. And it's important to have some amount of specialization, some understanding of what you're doing in terms of the space, but we're nimble enough to be able to look at a property and, you know, we might not go and build a retail strip center because that's not really what we do, but we have, you know, we have multiple, Kind of arrows in our quiver, and 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 uh, this industrial space is is one of them, and it's it's uh, fairly straightforward from a construction standpoint, right? And so permitting, design, uh, uh, it's basically a concrete box, right, with with lights and minimal heat until you get the actual TI fit out um, specifications. So, having gone through extremely complex commercial construction design construction process processes. I was in no way uh, concerned that we couldn't, you know, it's, it's all a matter of putting the right team together and having the right designer, the right construction partner. Um, so we're working with Arco, who's the number one builder of, of uh, industrial space in the country. And they're our design build partner. And, and uh, we've got Langen as a civil engineer, which is a you know a national civil engineering firm that's done a ton of Amazon facilities um, across the country. So we've got a lot of good information. We've got a good team and, and, and so much of it is just that, right. In terms of development, it's, it's how do you, how do you find the opportunity and then really kind of put that team together. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not gonna be the same team every time because it doesn't always make sense, but uh, having some of those uh, relationships and some of those kind of that type of thinking in your back pocket really helps us to be able to, you know, create value for our customers. Got it. I think I think the key thing to focus in on too is the distinct distinguishing a developer from a portfolio partner, or a, part, a portfolio manager, or development advisor, right? Because there's all these terms and they get thrown around in the industry yep. uh, in a variety of different ways. But the distinction is the way I'm kind of reading it now uh, is that an asset manager or someone in the role uh, that you're filling as a development operating partner. Um, you're across various asset classes. You're scanning the larger market for opportunities. Um, mm -hmm. And because of that uh, existing sort of deep value offering, you're not, you're not pushing the client into a particular asset class or market. Yep. You're, truly, you're, you're aligned with them and thinking, well, the best exit opportunity is the one we'll take. When you said, if the price is right, probably meant yeah. um, in excess of what they were asking for for the property to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, commensurate with, uh, in addition to, and commensurate with the additional risk they're taking uh, by sure. participating in your, your partnership. Um, mm -hmm. and, that, and that makes quantifiable sense because then you can then say and participate with them in a way that says, well, the more you, the better you do, the better we'll do, um, mm -hmm. and negotiate for the best possible uh, yeah. Good point. Know, resolution. But you also don't have to say, no, I'm bringing this to market because I need to make the maximum amount of money. 
developer. Uh, you can, uh, or say, I'm going to take all the risk off the table because I, I want to deliver projects. You know, um, XYZ Construction Corporation. Yeah. I want to, I want to turn over projects because that's how I get paid. So it's interesting that that just inherently in the definition of what you do and, and what your approach to the market is, that that puts you at, in a whole different sort of advisory position. Um, yeah, no, that's a great, a very good point. I think the, the, that's the the typical advisor is someone who's a third party that will sit at a distance and make suggestions. You know, kind of a management right. management consultant. Uh, so I did work in real estate management consulting for a few years, where we were looking at portfolios and making recommendations, and it was an enjoyable uh, experience. I learned I learned the process, which was uh, very valuable, but. I also learned that I didn't want to sit at a distance and, and write uh, reports only. I think it's interesting to kind of go through and analyze them, but in the end, mm -hmm. actually being able to take action and uh, implement and build projects is, is exciting. So, and, and I think it's yeah. also a commensurate with, like you were saying, that, you know, I think the risk reward thing makes a lot of sense for me when, when you go into developing assets and looking at projects together and, and really you know, development is management of risk. It's identifying value and then managing risk, right? And so it, as you uh, move forward and as family offices try to figure out what to do with certain pieces of land, you know, I think we we can come in and give uh, a lot of advice uh, up front and then help drive the project to the back. And one example is we've recently had a conversation with a with a family that owns a piece of property in downtown Tampa. And uh, so we're going to be kind of furthering that conversation as things go along, but they're, you know, they don't, they don't build uh, projects. They haven't developed uh, large mixed use projects. And, and so we have, and so we can bring that experience and some of the expertise to the table and as an operating partner. So we're having that conversation. It's a great, great conversation, great opportunity, but that's where we can really kind of step in and say, okay, well, you have a great piece of land here. Let's look at how we can kind of set this up for everyone to succeed. So. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think I think one of the easiest quantifiers of or, or metrics of which you can later gauge the success of a project is that initial team selection. You can't select a team if you haven't delivered those types of projects before because you don't know what to look for in that team. Oh yeah, comparing home builders, right? Or shouldn't even say that because they're they're all totally different specs. That's a great same thing. Yeah, comparing comparing a, a home builder, comparing um, the offerings of three multidisciplinary GCs that can deliver a high-rise project, the two very different things. And then I think people underestimate the size of the teams, right? I don't, again, I'm not familiar necessarily with the- You're right, absolutely. 20, 30 very, people have to be, you know, on yeah, yeah. for a year and a half together. So you better know, you know, yeah. that they all know each other and care about each other's opinions. I just recorded a, a video on this and I, I referred, I kind of used the analogy of picking playing play uh, pickup basketball, right? And you're picking picking the team and trying to figure out, you know, who's, who do you need on the team to, to win the game, right? And that, right. that's really kind of it over and over and over again, each project, you know, do you want do you want the, the, the smaller guard who's quick and can shoot? Or do you want the bigger guy that can kind of block, you know, clog up the lane? I mean, that, that it's, it's, it's a simplification of it, but that's really what it is, you know, identifying those pieces. And if you don't know, if there's a guy standing there you've never played basketball with him before, you don't know know that he can shoot and maybe he's a smaller guy or whatever, and what, you, you might not pick him. And then you end up uh, losing because uh, you didn't have that insight into kind of 
what that what the you know potential tools are in the toolbox right so that, that's a that's a fun analogy but that's really kind of the um the essence of it you know it's as simple as that right so what did i read recently um i was just doing i, I do all sorts of just ancillary sort of uh, research but um it was about a, a, nothing new asking the right question right mm-hmm. in order to frame and understand you, the only difference between this and, and picking kids uh, picking guys on a schoolyard to, to, to shoot ball with is that you know you maybe you get a little bit of an extended period asking questions you know <laughs> Um, and that series yep. of, of questions that you ask and relationships that you verify, that's all you go on um, mm-hmm. early on in the project, you know, then yeah. the RFP and their, and their, their bid and whatnot. But that, if you, if that's not guided by the right professional, you could definitely yeah. end up going to the really good salesman, uh, not yeah. necessarily um, competent team uh, participant. I think, yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. And that's a great point. It, it's very, um, not knowing the right questions to ask. And even when you get into the process, you've got a great team. You still need to know the right questions to ask the civil engineer or the architect. Do we really need to do this? Or is this, what about this? You know, and that, and that's your experience again. What about, (laughs) does this road have to, you know, there's an example. We're looking at the the industrial warehouse we were discussing the other day and the civil engineer showed up with us 30 feet off the property line. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you've got a small five acre acre site and you're trying to fit all your program and your parking in, I had shown it 15 feet off the, the, the park, uh, off the property line originally. And it was uh, pretty meaningful. You know, we, we were losing 5,000 square feet of the building because she just decided to make the road wide. Right. Um, and it's, it's a small kind of silly thing, but those things add up and, and really can be, uh, pretty impactful in terms of the long-term value of a real estate project. Uh, if you don't have that experience or have kind of sat in the room with the civil engineers before and know where they mm-hmm. can potentially go more, you know, over the top in terms of being conservative. Right. And so structural, the architect, everybody does it. It's natural. But then you just kind of have to have that, um, that back and forth and, and to be able to ask those questions. That's a great example. So yeah, even, even designing how they work together. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, sort of frame of mind that comes in when you're when you're discussing certain details. There's a there's a culture to certain projects, right? They exist long enough that they could they could live on their own as companies. Some of them, um, and and I think it's up to uh, a development manager or a project manager in that role to guide that that feeling that comes around that project and the systems that govern it. And that's that's not invested enough. Um, at all because I think it's the last thing on ownership's mind and they don't set parameters for that. So what happens is projects get managed however the general mood of the group is whoever may or may not be in charge actually can command that um, and they create they have these sort of personalities of their own um, and that's something I you know I personally struggle with because I don't want there to be you know friction and I think the better the professional the more they can speak uh, a myriad of languages right? Um, that that's something I look for in every team member right from the beginning. Like, can you talk to me, structural, civil, architectural? And then mm-hmm. when you need to talk to the client presenting the challenge solution, can you mm-hmm. speak to them in their language? Because there's no there's no sense in in flaunting a professionalism uh, if it affects your communication, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. 
So. No, and it, yeah, you're right. And it's about being able to kind of translate between one, one, uh, you know, structural engineering speak and, and for a layperson, and, you know, you're, you're presenting an idea to a planning board. Uh, some of those people are lay people. They're not engineers or they're not designers uh, or they're not developers, you know, being able to translate a, a lot of that um, technical language uh, and very specific industry specific language is just super important uh, for, for a developer and for, development partner. So that's something that we really focus on and pride ourselves on because I think we, we do a nice job of it and we've uh, been able to have some success as a result of it. You actually mentioned something a second ago, but it was kind of about the process. And I'd be curious, you know, you and I were talking the other day about um, kind of the design process and the offsite design process and, and how, you know, I have a, a friend, we won't go into too much detail, but a friend of mine, a colleague of mine from MIT that uh, is specializes in concrete structural engineering, and, and we were discussing like the design of a of a of a, of a, of a structure. And, and your point was, hey, you can design the structure, but then you have to take that and you have to do that in parallel as much as you can. Otherwise, you're redesigning the entire thing, right? Which is right. which is a pretty interesting um, thing because it because that offsite piece it just adds a it, it just it makes the um, which I, I'm particularly interested in. It really makes the, it changes the process. It's not, you know, the straightforward, just design a building and go for it. It's you're designing a process, you're designing an assembly process, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Love to hear more about that. You know. Yeah, I, I can, I could go all day. Uh, but, but let's say, let's say um, I, I try, this is my first time necessarily talking about it um, in a way that we're going to be able to watch this back. So I'm going to be excited to see that. But I think just as you were talking, I was thinking about um, design for, if we use the term design outside of architecture and engineering, right? When you're on a given project, you're designing for profitability, right? You're designing for uh, delivery uh, of the given project and the coordination, everything that goes into it. So site may be specific. The element that may be different, but is the key to sort of optimizing that delivery is designing for the processes that you're now consolidating your supply chain and team. And you need to design, you need to respect them a little more, right? So one thing is when you're, you're gonna take every decentralized uh, subcontractor you can find, whether or not they're in a good financial position or not, you're gonna put them all um, in a shark tank together. They're gonna bid and, and, and you're gonna get whatever you get at the end there. That's site built delivery. When you when you have a when you go to RFP three or four facilities uh, to deliver you a uh, pre-built product like you would doors and windows only in this case they're volumetric uh, boxes and steel wood or CLT whatever it might be you're now dealing with entities that are doing 20 50 200 million in business I mean there are some countries that are of that same size but they have an operation and a process that they've deemed uh, is optimal to deliver the product and it's flexible. Um, but it needs to be, there needs to be design considerations where it feels like that the entire um, contracting industry or um, is more of a, more of a, and this, this, this shows that I come from the, the field, but it, it feels almost like a hiring agency, right? It almost doesn't matter if the framer can frame. It's just, can you get me framers on the job this day and deliver over this week, these several sure. weeks? Yeah. You know? And so all of that compressed all the margins, created a business model that's really on um, 
jumping, asking to jump, you know, ask uh, how high can I jump and then just jumping and, and everyone just kind of doing things just to do them. So that I think eroded the idea that there is a process in construction. And I think it, it reflects negatively on the industry because it, it, it's almost like the only uh, sector that's devoid of process, or at least people understand it that way. It's not the case because you're always going to have a process, good or bad. You're, 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 as you're talking about it, I'm almost, it's like a pre-industrial process, right? It's like, you know, hey, right. this guy can, <laughs> the guy can throw up a frame and that guy can do some pipes. Hey, show up at the site on these days. And instead it's of good. what happened with the Industrial Revolution, you know, 150, 200 years ago, right? So I don't know. It's, it skipped that industry for some reason. <laughs> there's such, there's right? such a high value add that you, you yeah. can't justify why it would lag. The only thing I've thought about, because I, I, I don't know how productive it is, but I do think about these things too much, right? But at what point did it make sense um, to be that inefficient? Because there had to be some sort of driver. And when you also look at um, how everybody comps their time, right? Yeah. How projects are delivered, you realize that in a lot of ways you're incentivizing disorganization, okay? Uh, Absolutely. A lot of that gets eliminated um, when you come into the industrialized construction space or a production-oriented mm-hmm. um, gathering. People are, are more, firms deliver more efficiently when they focus on turning over product and sure. delivering, delivering capitalized projects or whatever your sector might be. When you're trying to squeeze every penny out of individual projects, which is ultimately many times what the end client is doing, if the team adopts mm-hmm. that mentality or an industry that's serving them adopts that same mentality, they're going to put themselves out of business. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that's where, that's where the industrialized construction industry really defines itself in that fundamentally because it's manufacturing and technology oriented, yep. those backstops are there and they mm-hmm. only exist there. So that's very high level. I don't know that we want to oh. dig into all that, but and I would, and I would just say that the, the add to that, I think, is that it's hyper local, right? In terms of the availability of labor, uh, the the building and construction techniques that are used in different parts of the country that are or or used more often, uh, and then there's also the cycle, right? The market cycle, right? And and so I've I've uh, took a prefab class in grad school, and we talked about. You know, how, you know, why is it that you can go and buy a, a prefab factory really cheaply in 2008, right? Why? Because uh, the market at the time was down and less people were building uh, custom manufactured homes, prefab homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then as the market goes back up, there's more demand for it. And so it's, it, it's I don't know, the, the, some of those pieces just kind of make it interesting. I, I don't think there's any real clear answer as to it's one thing it's clearly multiple things that have all influenced and created this kind of uh the situation but i think as we go forward i know there's groups like your own that are that are looking to kind of capitalize on that and build uh, build out that right infrastructure so that there is a sustain- i mean you guys have had a sustainable business for a long time so you guys figured right. that out uh, but a lot of businesses have it so there there is a sense of being um you know, well-rooted in the space. Obviously, you know, we feel recession-proof because we're designing schools, hospitals, helicopter pads, dormitories for the government and, and high-end houses, right? So we're okay. We'll, we'll be fine. I think that the cyclical nature of the industry, uh, any anything that's, I mean, manufacturers in general suffer from this. Uh, corrections are felt pretty deeply because you are uh, a capital-intensive and labor-intensive business. Uh, it's answering a lot of sure. the challenges, but I like to think of it as uh, anything that sort of benefits your 
uh, rank and file employee ultimately benefits the enterprise and the industry as a whole. The, the fundamentals of the labor shortage, the solution to that is, is really treating and upskilling and building up those that you do have under your employee so you can retain them better in a time when things correct. And I think that inherently the manufacturing environment affords that uh, and streamlined uh, site operations you know, affords you the latitude to treat that team better. So aside from it being um, the toll that cycles have on the manufacturing industry, you know, those sort of fundamentals, I keep rooting back to fundamentals. I almost like ditching the word modular for construction manufacturing, uh, ditching the word, you know, uh, disruption yeah. for uh, technology implementation, right? <laughs> like this is not, it's not the end of history, right? It's like, it's the yeah. basic Absolutely. foundational elements of standard process efficiency in every other industry. So I find it hard to, to really separate what we do only in that it's better <laughs> or that the process has is more focused. At no point do you say, hey, you know what I really want in this project? I want to be less focused, um, more divergent in everyone's opinions of what we should do. And I want to decentralize my supplier base, put them all over, uh, make them all unreliable and put them all in different places. Like, no one would go out of their way to do that. So it finds sure. it, it's hard for me to, to process the idea that, okay, well, using one large supplier is going to hurt my margin or yeah. using one um, centralized sort of hub of operations is going to somehow derail my project. Mm. If anything, that's the only hope you got. <laughs> and if it's hurting your margin, then your margin was too thin to begin with. Yeah. So maybe, maybe some industries aren't ready for it. Maybe single family scattered site institutional housing as much as I also think that it's a great solution for the industry, maybe the profitability element isn't there yet. Mm. And you have to make that judgment call. I, I'm, I'm the first one to say when something doesn't fit, right? Yeah. But when it comes to hospitals and schools and high rises and industrial facilities, I mean, no brainer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it should be. Yeah. Um, so it's just a scale thing maybe or, or a complexity thing that really drives mm. um, when you need certain certain tools. There is maybe a place, I started calling it craft built, um, mm. kind of like building for the sake of bringing everyone together and creating something beautiful. That's one thing. If you wanna mm. deliver a project inside of eight months, cause that's where your peak profitability is, then we're gonna wanna systematize, you know? Yeah. If I'm building a shed in my backyard and I don't, I don't care when it's done, um, that's totally different, right? Yeah. Um, so totally. I've, been, I've been using that term craft built. Uh, I'm hoping like it sticks. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's that's all I got because I got the engineers at 8.30 and I just made them wait. Sounds good. <laughs> cool.